It was Monday night, August 3rd, 1992. And the Olympics were in Barcelona, Spain. And the, and the, at the track and field stadium, the, the gun sounded for the 400-meter semifinals. And about 100 meters into the race, Britain's Derek Redmond crumpled to the track with a torn right hamstring. Medical attendants rushed out to assist him. But as they approached Redmond, he, he waved them all aside as he struggled to his feet and he crawled and he hopped, all in a desperate effort to finish the race. He said to himself, I'm not quitting. I'm going to finish this race. So he worked his way, hobbling and hopping and crawling at times down the track. Up on the stands, a big guy wearing a t-shirt, tennis shoes, and a Nike cap that said, just do it, ran down. And he threw aside a security guard, and he ran to Derek Redmond's side. And that man was Jim Redmond, Derek's father. Jim was a sports dad. But he wasn't the kind of sports dad who lives vicariously through their children's accomplishments. He didn't push his son by demanding a level of performance before any approval was offered to him. No, he was the kind of sports dad who changed his whole life for the sake of his son. He changed jobs. He moved to find the best training for Derek. He did everything he could to help his son become the kind of person and the kind of runner that Derek himself wanted to be. It wasn't Jim's dream, it was Derek's. Or, or perhaps we could say that it was equal parts, both of their dreams. To anyone who knew Jim, it was clear that Jim loved and adored his son. And this was clearest of all to Derek himself. So the dynamics in the family went like this. Derek didn't run to earn his father's love. No, it was his father's love that actually gave Derek the motivation to run. Huge difference there. Going back to Barcelona, Jim, Jim had left the stands and joined his son. And, and with his arms around his son's waist and his Derek's arm around his dad's thick shoulders and neck, they both continued down the track together. At the stadium, the crowd was standing and cheering until finally, arm in arm, they, they crossed the finish line together. Derek's courage to get up and finish the race not only came from his desire to run with excellence, I believe that he was motivated even more by the thought of his father watching in the stands. He, he felt his father's love and his father's love made him want to finish the race. More importantly, Derek was able to finish the race because of the additional strength and support that his father came out of the stands to give him. What Derek couldn't do on his own, he did with his father's help. Please turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to be looking at verses 16 to 23. It's on page 980. Six of the Congregational Bibles, the blue book underneath the chair in front of you, somewhere around you. Galatians 5, 16 to 23. Today we return to our cultivating series and we're going to continue to, to once again concentrate on the context. 
surrounding the fruit of the Spirit. You know, it, it may not seem that we need to focus on the context two weeks in a row. But you know how I am about context. And, and without drilling down into foundations, the foundation of this passage, we're not going to be able to truly mine all of its treasures. So we need to make sure that we've got a good foundation before we start to build. Beginning with verse 16, we read. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other. So that you do not know what you want. So that you do not do, sorry, what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now the statement that sums up Paul's message in this letter to the churches in Galatia is found in chapter 5, verse 1. For it is freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Notice that again, it has to take effort on our part. It has to be something that we're vigilant about. We have to stand firm or we will again be burdened by a yoke of slavery. This is a continuing condition that just happens. It's a continuing condition, condition that happens because we stand firm. We remain vigilant. We make sure that we're thinking the right way. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul battles for Christian freedom. And believe it or not, as Christians, one of the easiest things for us to give up is our freedom. That's why we have to stand firm. That's why we have to be proactive. That's why we have to be intentional. We give up our freedom as soon as we stop depending on God. And it's so easy for us to stop depending on God. Now, it's been my experience that people find it relatively easy to depend on God for their salvation. But then they find it hard to live their lives daily dependent on God for their growth. As Christians, we understand that we're saved by grace, but then we forget that we must also live by grace. We must also live by grace. For, for this reason, Paul's letter to the Galatians is incredibly important to us. It was written to correct the most common error we face as Christians, which is trapping ourselves in a religion of performance instead of a relationship with our gracious, supportive Heavenly Father. In Acts 13 and 14, we have the account of Paul's first missionary journey into the area of Galatia. On this missionary journey, Paul and his companions visit four cities. In each city, they receive a similar response. 
The Jews reject the message and the Gentiles welcome it. Unfortunately, the Jews not only reject Paul's message, they also become jealous of Paul's success. And at one point, they almost succeed in killing him. But despite the persecution he suffered, Paul left the area with new congregations alive and growing. But as we talked about last week, in Paul's absence, Jewish Christians visited these churches that Paul had established and they corrupted the gospel message that Paul had preached so faithfully. Basically, they added to the gospel. The gospel states that we can do nothing to earn our salvation. Nothing. The gospel states that salvation is a free gift that can only be received through faith in who Jesus was and what he did for us upon the cross. But instead of keeping this core belief of the Christian faith intact, these false teachers added to the gospel. They upgraded the importance of our efforts and downgraded the efforts of Christ's sacrifice. You can understand how that might happen. After all, it still happens today because the message of grace is a difficult message for us to grasp and to hold on to. To think that God has done everything that's needed for us to please him and that nothing more is required for us other than to believe and to accept God's gift, that doesn't make sense to us. We're too cynical. And our cynical side kicks in and we begin to search for the fine print somewhere. There, there must be a catch, we reason. There, there must be some hidden requirement somewhere. There's got to be a trap in here for us to try to avoid. What Paul always, uh, Paul was always being misunderstood and, and always being misrepresented as he preached freedom in Christ. For many, Paul seemed to be preaching a message that would allow us to do whatever we want, whenever we wanted to do it, and, and we would just let God pay the price. But that's not how it works, and that's not what he preached. What freedom in Christ really means is freedom from the bondage of sin. Because we now have the capacity to follow God's leading through the ministry and the witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. To be free in Christ isn't a license to sin, it's an invitation to grow in Christ. And become more like him. Unfortunately, the Christians in Galatia had chosen to depend on their own efforts instead of the resources God offered through the Holy Spirit. And again, that's no surprise to us because I believe all of us at various times and maybe even at this moment right now are depending more on our own strength than the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So no wonder Paul begins his letter with these words. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. These are strong words. Again, like I said last week, this is Paul at his most zealous. He's on fire. Because he understands the seriousness of what's going on. You see, Paul already knew the outcome of trying to live under the law. And and to please God through our own religious performance. He, he, in one point in, in, in Philippians, he talks about that he was, you know, the perfect Jew. The Pharisee of Pharisees. 
He was faultless when it came to keeping the law. But that's from the outward appearance. That's not what he felt like in his heart. He knew what kind of bondage and pain it brought into somebody's life to live by trying to please God in our own religious performance. Listen to how he describes living up to God's standards in his own strength. I'm reading from the message in Romans chapter 7 because it just it speaks to us, I think, so clearly. Uh, beginning at verse 17, Paul says, I know that all God's commands are spiritual, but I'm not. Isn't this also your experience? Yes, I'm full of myself after all. I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way and then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't trust, so if I can't be trusted to figure out what's is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I I can't will it. I can will it, I should say. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and it gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel. And just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions when I wanted to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Paul says, I know that all God's commands are spiritual, but I'm not. Isn't that also your experience? I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Trying to please God with our own good actions is hopeless and frustrating. We can't do it. We haven't got the resources to make it work. In fact, our own resources are at odds with God's resources. Isn't that what Paul is telling us in Galatians chapter 5? Again, look at verses 16 and 17. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desire of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other. So that you do not do what you want. That's the battle 
mind of the Christian. This battle isn't going on in non-Christians because there really is no conflict. They're just doing what they want to do, right? By sinful nature, Paul is simply referring to the nature with which we are born. By sinful nature, Paul is simply referring to the nature shaped by living a broken life in a broken world. So Paul is telling us that our natural preferences are contrary to God's preferences. That's just the way it is. Our will for our lives is fundamentally opposed to God's will for our lives. If this is the case, then how can we keep God's will? How can we not break his will by doing our own will? We can't. And that's Paul's point. We may want to do God's will, and sometimes it may be our desire to do God's will. That much has changed. Paul reminds us in Romans 5.10 that we were enemies of God, but through his saving work, Christ's saving work, we were reconciled to him. So this is what sets us apart as those who have been reconciled through our faith in Christ. We want to please God. That shows that we've been redeemed. We are no longer enemies of God. This is our intention. Not to be an enemy. But without surrendering to God's grace, our intentions will never be fully realized. In fact, without his help, we will fail miserably. This, in a nutshell, is our problem. This is what life is like between the two worlds of Christ's coming and Christ's return. Between being redeemed and being recreated in spirit but not in body. Between the the good work and the new work within us and one foot in the world that has always been. And it's hopeless and it's frustrating. We haven't got the resources to make it work. And it's just not the way to live, is it? So what we need to do is change our lives or to have our lives change from the inside out. And if we're going to please God, that has to happen. We can't please God by merely trying. The fruit we can come up with in our own strength just isn't the kind of fruit that God's interested in. It's not what he's looking for. As a matter of fact, it's not even the kind of fruit that we want. It's rotten. You ever had some rotten fruit in the fridge that you didn't notice for a while and you couldn't remember where the flies came from? Or where the smell came from until you finally discovered that apple at the back corner of the crisper in the fridge. Nobody wants rotten fruit. Nobody accepts it as a real gift. Have you ever heard of apple, cedar apple rust? I came across the story of a family in Nebraska that had this beautiful apple tree in their backyard. And it bloomed bloomed beautifully in the spring. But there was a problem with the tree. Actually, the problem wasn't in the tree itself. The problem was where it was planted. You see, their neighbor had a red cedar tree that grew very close to their apple tree. And when apple trees and cedar trees are planted near one another, there's a good chance that they will get cedar apple rust. 
So every year the fruit tree or the fruit of this apple tree is infected with brown rot. And the cedar tree was infected with slimy orange cankers. Slimy orange cankers, just say that ten times fast. Now the funny thing about cedar apple rust is that neither tree can remain infected unless they're together. And neither tree can remain infected year after year without the other. So it's a symbiotic kind of a thing. The apple must be infected by the cedar and the cedar has to be infected by the apple. So if you want to have good fruit, you can't have both types of trees in your backyard. Just keep that in mind. You must get rid of the cedar tree in order to produce healthy fruit for your apple tree. Now Paul's making the same point in Galatians 5. If you want to produce the kind of fruit that God's interested in, you must depend upon him and not yourself. Trying to please God by depending on yourself will only produce slimy orange cankers. Spiritually speaking. We must live by the Spirit if we want to produce the fruit that honors God. And remember, to live by the Spirit is to give ourselves over to the Spirit's control. Again, that's not a one-time thing. That's a moment-by-moment thing. You know, instead of trying to run the race on our own, we must lean on our Heavenly Father to get us over the finish line. We can't please God unless we trust Him enough to let Him come and help us, help carry us. That needs to be our attitude. That's what a life of faith is about. Maybe you're still not quite sure what it looks like or feels like to live in the Spirit or to be controlled by the Spirit. I, I get that. It's, it's a nebulous kind of a thing. It's this ethery kind of thing, living by the Spirit. Well, let's try to flesh that idea out a little bit more with a couple of passages. In Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 24, we read, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So right there you have the sense of being controlled, right? Being under the influence of one, not the other. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and and make music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Notice I stop before the husband's part comes in. Notice that this passage, Paul commands the church to be controlled by the Spirit. And then he goes on to show an example of what Spirit-controlled life looks like. It has to do with worship and thankful hearts and submissive, humble attitudes towards one another. We're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now let's look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 19. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since... As members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. With gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
See all the connections, all the similarities. These are almost identical. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Both passages are almost identical except for one difference. In the Ephesians passage, we're talking about being controlled by the Spirit. And in the Colossians passage, we're talking about the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. What can we conclude from these two passages? To live in the Spirit is to be controlled by the Spirit. And it is also to be taken in, to study, to to follow and to properly apply apply God's word to our lives. This makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, after all, who inspired God's word? The Holy Spirit, right? So to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly is to let the Holy Spirit have control in our lives. It's a little more practical and a little less ethereal than maybe you thought, right? There's something you can actually do to be controlled by the Spirit. You can read God's word. You can study God's word. You can apply God's word. You can obey God's word. How do we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? We do it through prayer and application and submission. We understand the authority of God's word in our lives. And we don't take our authority over his word. In other words, the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to change us. It's a living word. But for that change to take place, we must help him by taking in his word. In Psalm 1 we read, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of the sinners, or sit in the seat of the mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's always thinking about it. Always thinking about how it applies to his life. Of what the implications of it might be. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. And whose leaves do not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The Holy Spirit uses God's word in our lives to change our attitudes and, and to help us yield his fruit. We can't bear fruit without his help. But at the same time he needs our attention. He needs our willingness to study his word, to meditate upon his word. But we aren't just to study his word to know what it says. We must study it to know him. Big difference. There's lots of people who are an authority on God's word, but they don't know God particularly well. Because they're pretty legalistic in the way they approach life. We study God's word to know God. Not just to know his word. The Holy Spirit uses God's word in our lives to change our attitude and to help us to to yield his fruit. But again, we can't bear his fruit without his his help. We, We must study to know him. Jesus tells us this himself in John 15. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you produce fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. 
If no man remains in me and I in him, he will bear... No, if a man, sorry, remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you're crippled on the track and you're not going to finish the race. What does it mean to remain on the vine? It means that the branch must stay connected to the vine. The branch must receive its nutrients and its life from the vine. The vine has the life. The vine provides everything for producing fruit. The fruit comes as a natural byproduct of branches being connected to the vine. Apart from the vine, no fruit will come. Apart from our relationship with Jesus, no fruit will come. Apart from relying on God as our source of life, our lives will not change. We will not bear fruit. We will not finish the race without holding on to our Heavenly Father and without having our Heavenly Father hold on to us. We are too powerless, too crippled to finish the race on our own power. During World War II, the natives of uh, the Malaysian islands of the South Pacific watched closely as the American and British engineers came in and built airstrips. No, the islanders were amazed to see that, that when the airstrips were completed, planes just began arriving, filled with all kinds of food and building materials and machinery and even vehicles. It was miraculous to them. They decided it was something that they were interested in having happen for themselves. So the Malaysians thought that if they built airstrips, Planes with the same kind of goodies would come to them as well. So they began working on their own airstrips. They hacked out makeshift runways and built their own version of a control tower out of grass and mud. They put fires along the side of the runways and put a man in a grass hut control tower with two coconuts for headphones Two half, of, half coconuts for headphones. Finally, they made antennas out of bamboo. Everything looked ready. So the natives stood back and they waited for the planes to land. And they waited. And they waited. And as far as they could see, they, they were doing everything right. The form was perfect. It looked exactly the way it was supposed to look. But it didn't work. No planes ever landed on their airstrips. Why didn't the planes come? What was the Malaysians' mistake? The mistake was thinking that planes will land if you build a strip. But in reality, the planes only come because you have a relationship with the one who sends them. Right? Receiving goodies isn't about building a strip. It's about knowing the one who sends them. Occasionally we get confused like the Malaysians did. Sometimes we think that if everything looks okay on the outside, then our spiritual lives are working. <coughs> so people build spiritual runways in their lives that look exactly like they're supposed to look. And then they wait for the fruit to come their way, but the fruit doesn't come. Because they're depending on what they've built with their own hands, rather than depending on a relationship with the one who sends the fruit.
Don't waste your time building your own spiritual runway. Spend your time building a relationship with the one who sends the planes. Am I making sense here? Why have I gone through all the trouble of speaking about performance versus relationship? I've done it to set the proper foundation for our series on the fruit of the Spirit. I've done it because I want to make sure that you understand that we won't be looking at a list of things that you must accomplish. They are a set of qualities that will describe how you will look as you focus on Christ and let God work in you. That's what we're looking at. Remember what fruit is. It is what comes naturally from a tree that is healthy and alive. Fruit doesn't come from focusing on producing fruit. It comes from focusing on God. If you're living in your own strength, it will show. If you're living in God's strength, it will show as well. It is a relationship, not a religion, that we are following. It is personal, not performance. Be like Derek Redman. Don't run to earn your father's love. You already have it. You already have it. Instead, let your Heavenly Father's love give you the strength to run. Worship team.